will be in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And if you're just joining us, 1 Peter is a letter written by the ancient missionary and apostle and pastor uh, extraordinaire Peter, and he is writing to a group of scattered Christians that have been driven from their homes and livelihoods because of persecution, and he is seeking to shepherd them from afar. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, He is certainly doing the same for us some 2,000 years later. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and let's get to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We ask that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, as we jump into this, <coughs> you will notice that it picks up right up on the heels of what we talked about last week, where Pastor David led us in a study of submission to authority in regard primarily to the government. And here, uh, Peter's going to use that same verb. He's going to move into applying that same concept, not to the government, but in the workplace. But the way that he's going to talk about the workplace is not at all in the way that you and I would know the workplace today. There was certainly no office. Uh, There was certainly a totally different way of relating to the work that you were doing back then. We'll get into all that. And there's a lot for us to kind of excavate here uh, as we seek to apply it faithfully in the modern context. Before we jump into that, let me also make just a couple of uh, further introductory comments about this passage because it really is important that we get this right. Uh, You will notice as you look at this that Peter is not very exhaustive in his treatment of this concept. In fact, this is uh, very different than the way that Paul talks about uh, this same idea, and you'll see it again next week when when we talk about uh, husbands and wives and, and so on in the coming weeks. And <coughs> Peter is very scant almost with his detail. And that doesn't mean that what he says is wrong. It doesn't mean that what he says is not trustworthy. It just means that he is very, very focused. Think high-powered rifle. That is how the Spirit inspired him to speak to these people. Uh, he knew his audience. He knew what they needed to hear to help them stay on track with Jesus and what Jesus was calling them to do within their context. And that is why this text appears the way that it does. So that being said, let's go ahead and jump in deep here in verse 18, which says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, Our first point today is actually going to come in two pieces, but let me go ahead and give you the first one that comes right off the surface of the text, and that is, servants be submissive to your masters and treat them with respect. That's the first point. That's exactly what Peter said to them. And the reason I want to give it to you like that is because I want to illustrate for you how we determine what the Bible is saying and then how we apply it today. When Peter was speaking this, he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to this group of people that were, one translation of this says, slaves. Now, the concept of slavery in the first century, for us to try to understand it, is very complicated. Because when we think slavery, what do we think? We think of the horrible, deplorable, horrific institution from uh, the, the 19th century. 
But that is not what the people at this time, that is not the kind of slavery that they were under. Now, let's be clear, this was a complicated situation because even though it wasn't that bad, it wasn't great. These people were still serving involuntarily. They had basically no rights, so on and so forth. But generally speaking, many of them were fairly well treated. In some situations, it was almost like they were members of the family. In other cases, some of the, the slaves uh, were more educated than the people who owned them. Uh, and it was possible for people to uh, amass a certain amount of wealth from their uh, involuntary service, though they, they, some of them or, or many of them did get paid to actually buy their way out of freedom. So uh, it, it's also worth understanding that nearly one third of the Roman population would have been uh, falling into this socioeconomic category. And it, it's very complex for us to try to understand it. And what makes it even more interesting here is the word that you have translated as servants. If you have an NIV Bible, they use the word slave there, I believe. That word is actually not the most common word to talk about this. It's usually like the second or third most common. And it talks about a certain kind of household servant. Okay, so these were the folks that would have been in charge of much of the, the care of the home and that kind of thing. And so there were many of these folks that, that were in these uh, the scattered groups that Peter was writing to. And so he was telling them, hey, listen, here's, here's what I'm going to need you to do. Here's what God wants you to do. Uh, one more comment on this that I think is helpful to us. Wayne Grudem, who was a help to me and uh, putting this together through his commentary, and I'll mention him probably a couple more times in this message. He says it like this, perhaps a word stronger than servant but weaker than slave is needed to capture the essence of what is being said here. These were semi-permanent employees without legal or economic freedom, and that kind of describes the situation that is happening here. Uh, some people have referred to this almost as an indentured servanthood, not a great existence, but not as bad as what happened here in this country uh, back in the 19th century. So, now that we know a little bit about to whom he is speaking, what is the command that he gives them? Well, it is to be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And so I think with implicit within that command, you, you kind of get some of the smell of what Peter is getting at here. This is not a great situation. Uh, you're going to have people that sometimes treat you well, and you're going to have other people that are just very difficult. Some of them are going to be crooked. Some of them are going to mistreat you. And what he's saying is, listen, be subject to them. Submit to them. Follow them. Follow their orders. And then he's going to explain why in just a bit. Because when you do that, some really important things are going to happen. So that's a little bit better understanding of who that he is speaking to, and then also the command that he is giving them. Now, let's build a bridge from the first century to where we are now. Because in our context, it's not immediately the same, is it? We don't have a one-to-one -one parallel from what Peter was talking about uh, to where we are. And so how do we apply this? Well, most uh, pastors and commentators and scholars even agree that the natural connection here is 
the modern workplace. And that could be a farm, that could be an office, that could be if you're a solopreneur. If, if anyone is in authority over you, and that's true for all of us, even those who are in charge have to answer to shareholders or a board or whoever, the, the application I think should sound something like this. So this is point 1B if you're keeping up. Employees be submissive to those in authority over you and treat them with respect. Okay, this counts for the good bosses that treat you right and give you raises and ask about your family and know your birthday and all that, but also to those people that are grumpy and crusty and difficult and sometimes blame you for doing your job. You know what I'm talking about. All those kinds of folks, he's saying, listen, be submissive to their authority wherever they're coming from. And I think that it's the attitude here, it's the mindset, it's the heart that Christians should be known for being the hardest working, the most uh, helpful, the most encouraging, the most team playerly, if I could make that up, the most others-ish, if I could make that up. Those kinds of people, that's what Christians need to be known for in the workplace. They don't need to be known for always trying to stick it to the man and go against the grain and always having something negative to say. And you get what I'm saying, that there should be an attitude of submissiveness to the authority that is over this or over us. But you might say, Dustin, is that a complete submissiveness? It absolutely isn't. Because just like Pastor David told you last week, anytime we get the command to submit here in the Bible, whether it's from Paul or from Peter, it comes with an implicit limit, a governor, if you will. And the way that I was taught to think about this helps me to this day, that we follow human authority until it conflicts with God's authority. That we do what they say, so to speak, until they ask us to do something that God says is out of bounds, something that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical. Illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical. And that's really important because sometimes you get in those situations in the workplace where somebody in authority over you might say, hey, listen, nobody's gonna know about this. You need to do this. Yes, it's illegal, but nobody cares. Just do it. Well. If we're going to be faithful to this text, that's one of those places where we can't just go along to get along. That if we're being asked to violate God's law in order to keep up with the office law, well, then that's the time where we have to pipe up and say, hey, listen, I can't do that. And here's why I can't do that. And that is how we live in light of that. But here's the truth. We got to be careful as Christians and definitely careful as modern Americans because our default setting is often not submission, it's rebellion. <laughs> we want to stick it to the man. And that's the opposite of what Peter is saying. And so we got to figure out how do we do what God wants us to do in the context of what these people are wanting to do. And we also need to know where those limits are. But friends, how are you going to know what's illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical? You got to know the Bible. You got to be in a good local church. You got to be walking in community with other Christians. And you got to be immersed in a gospel culture so that you can know what those parameters are. 
And I'm happy to say to you here that God has been so kind to us that he has given us that. He has given us faithful teaching of the word. He has given us wonderful people to be a part of. He has given us people that will pray for us when it gets hard at work to do exactly what we're talking about here. He's given us wonderful gospel culture where we can bear with one another and we need to take full advantage of that because guess what I know? Work is hard. Even if you work at a wonderful place with a wonderful employer, sometimes that man or woman in authority over you, they're gonna lose their temper. They're gonna not see it the way that it actually needs to be seen. Something's gonna happen and we're gonna be tested and tempted to fly off the handle and rage against the machine and end up ultimately getting fired. We don't want that. God doesn't want that. The advancement of the gospel doesn't want that. We want to be the kind of people who are known for hard work, known for being team players, known for loving their coworkers, and being submissive to the authority over us. So let me ask you these couple of questions. Is that what's in your heart? Do you have that kind of appropriately governed submissiveness to the authorities over you? Or are you just waiting for the next opportunity to pop off? Friends, if it's the latter, would you let the Holy Spirit gently correct you today to point you back, to pull you back in line with the good news of the gospel? Second question I would ask here is, what are you known for in the workplace? Are you known for your work ethic? Are you known for your team playerliness? Are you known for your ability to look out for and encourage other employees? Oh, friends, I hope so. And if not, would you listen to the Holy Spirit today as He wants to help you? Will you lean into Jesus as He wants to care for you in this particular area for His glory, for your good, and for the advancement of the gospel in your workplace and to the ends of the earth? That's what Peter wanted for these people, and they were in far worse situations than most of us are in. And if it was true for them, it's surely true for us. And the same Holy Spirit that helped them will help us today. So let's lean in and let's see what only God can do in this area. All right, so that's verse 18. And here's one of the things I love about this passage. Because even though it's been difficult to mine out what's going on, I love how it illustrates the heart of God again. See, He doesn't just say, here's what I want you to do. He gives multiple layers of why He wants us to do it. And listen, I've told you this before, I'll tell you again. If you have children or students or even just yourself, the Bible is not just a group of pithy sayings and moral stories and inspiration and do's and don'ts. It's not. God is showing us if there's a command to not do something or to do something, there's always reasons behind it. We can trust Him. We can trust His heart toward us. And these next few verses give us another wonderful set of examples of how that is the case. Look at verse 19. For, so this is a purpose clause, right? This is the explanation of what he just said. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the principle would be, God is glorified when we trust Him and act rightly in the midst of unjust suffering. So this phrase here, it's a gracious thing. Now we know it's important because he repeats it. And anytime you see something repeated, you know that the writer is trying to call attention to it to, to make a point. And when he talks about it being a gracious thing, I don't think what he's saying is, listen, anytime you suffer, God is up there smiling going, yeah, yeah, that looks great. That's not the picture of God in the Bible. That's very sadistic. I think the key to understanding this is when you suffer rightly and you're mindful of God, then it's a gracious thing. And I think we need to understand that in a couple of different ways. First of all, it is a, a gracious thing to us. It's a gift to us. It's something that will lead to reward for us if we look to God and trust Him in the midst of that unjust suffering. I like what Wayne Grudem has to say about this as well. He says, It is the trusting awareness of God's presence and His never-failing care. Don't you love that? Just let that rest on you. The awareness of God's presence and His never-failing care, which is the key to righteous suffering. It is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to submit to unjust masters without resentment, rebelliousness, self-pity, or despair. So I love what he's getting at there. He's not saying that the way you're going to get this right is by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just muscling through. He's saying the way that you're going to get this right, the way you're going to experience even this bad thing as a gift is the knowledge that God is somehow going to use even this to make you more like Jesus, to foster greater Christ-like character within you, to give you a story that you could tell to your children or grandchildren about the, the kinds of situations they'll face and how God brought you through. It, it's those kinds of things of looking to and being reminded of the faithfulness of God even in those situations. And think about this, friends. He's saying this to people that were house servants slash slaves who were under very poor conditions, likely. And that's who he's saying this to first. And so if it was true for them, it's certainly true for us, many of whom go to work every day in a multi-million dollar air-conditioned office building, have wonderful resources, so on and so forth. You get what I'm saying? So... But the secret here that we got to lean in on is the mindfulness of God. So let's start in the workplace, but then let's draw the ripples out just a little further. Do you know that everything in your life that comes your way, God has a purpose for it? Every pain, every frustration, everything that just happens in the fallen world, it might be annoying, but it is not accidental. And even though the world, the flesh, and the devil would use it to harm us, God is so strong and so powerful that He can bring good even out of that bad. That He has purpose for our pain, whether it's unjust suffering in the workplace or in the school or wherever we find it. God wants to use it 
He wants to show us of His sufficiency, His power, His never-failing care, just like Grudem said. Oh, friends, let that help you today. Let that encourage you today with whatever you face, that God is caring for you even in those moments where you feel that He might not care at all. Listen for it. Trust in Him. He is at work. Now, the second way I think we can apply this, so sovereignty of God first, it's also the very real resources that God has for us to get through those dark times. I mentioned them before, but let me say it again. Listen, your community around you is really, really important. And I don't just mean you come to community group and you just complain and everybody's like, yeah, my boss is bad too. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for you to be able to say, hey, I'm in this situation. I'm trying to do the right thing. They're trying to get me to do the wrong thing. I'm getting penalized for, for doing what they hired me to do. You know, those kinds of situations. Would you pray for me and help me get through this? And if you get into a situation where it's like, hey, I, I just, I cannot in good conscience continue to work here. You know, those are the kind of people, your pastors, we're the kind of people that you need to invite into that process if you need that help to be able to say, hey, this is complicated. I'm not sure what to do. Can you help me untangle this? And over the years of ministry and doing this kind of thing, I've been able to help folks with that. We need one another so that we might cultivate and maintain the kind of mindfulness of God that we need to get through seasons of unjust suffering and suffering of all kinds. So again, friends, let me ask these questions. Are you mindful of God when you suffer, unjust or not? Do you know that He's up to something? Do you know that He has something for you even in the midst of the difficulty that you're in? Beyond that, are you looking to God? Are you mindful of His help, of His resources, of His never-failing care in those moments? And do you see the good gift of the church that He has given us to be able to walk through these valleys of darkness together? Oh, friends, it's my hope that today the Lord would remind us of both and that we'd be helped. Now, let's continue on. Because here in verse 21, he continues with the fours. So these are further explanations. And what Peter does here, it's going to help us in this text, but it's going to help us in life in general. What he's going to do is what I talk to you about regularly. He's going to apply the gospel. He's going to talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how it relates specifically to this very situation that they and often we face. Take a look at it. For to this you have been called. Now, a little debate here on exactly what is the this that you've been called to here. Uh, what I think he's talking about here is this unjust suffering that we all run into at times. Well, Jesus told us that was going to happen. No servant is above his master. If they hated him, they're going to hate you. Those kinds of statements. It is part and parcel of the Christian experience that we will suffer, sometimes unjustly, at times. It's just part of it. So, what he goes into there is the direct connection to Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So principle first. Number three, 
Jesus is our example of how to rightly act when we suffer unjustly, and He is the empowerment we need to make that reality. Now, let's unpack it. When He talks about the example here, it's a fascinating word. It literally means a model or a pattern to be copied in writing or drawing. I don't know if you grew up and had this kind of stuff, but I did. It was like a one of these pictures that had like very dark lines and it was on like a cardstock or something and you put it on a paper and then you get like tracing paper and put it on. I, I spent hours doing that as a kid. My art today does not reflect it, but drawing over that pattern, it was awesome. And so what he's saying here is, that's what Jesus' suffering provides for us. It's not the same, but it's similar enough that when you suffer unjustly, you look back at Jesus' unjust suffering and it is going to help you. It is going to give you a pattern where you can follow in His steps. That's what He's saying. He's the example for you. And then he's going to get into Isaiah 53 for the next three verses, and he's going to drill down on that pattern. Look at it. It says, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So, theology lesson here, Jesus was sinless, absolutely essential for the gospel that we understand that. And also pointing out no deceit in his mouth. I think that has to say something here that like when your boss is mean, you don't need to turn it around by lying. Jesus didn't do that, so you don't need to do that. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How applicable is that? When someone accuses you and calls you names and blah, 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 you don't turn around and, and fight fire with fire in a sinful way. Now, is there a place for you to, to speak up and defend yourself? I think that there are many situations where you should, but not in a way that gives you license to take a blowtorch to the person who took a blowtorch to you. This is a cruciform pattern that our life, our response should be like Jesus. Furthermore, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Again, think about that. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. So right there, we're right back to where we were a minute ago. Mindful of God. That part of the way Jesus was able to do what he did and finish the work that God had given him to do is because he knew his father had a plan. He knew that his suffering was not going to be wasted. He knew that even though it was the worst thing that had happened to any human being, he could trust God, and God was going to make redemption possible. Oh, friends, that God would give us similar faith to be able to trust God. And I think that it's important to understand, that I think this comes with somewhat of a governor as well. One writer said it like this, that as he was surveying the place of the cross in Christian living, he argued that, the fo that following Jesus did not necessarily mean acquiescence to injustices, but catch this, but it does mean that if Christians obey the biblical command to follow Christ's example, they will refuse to regard oppressors as enemies to be reviled and hated. Rather, precisely as they remember that Christ died for their sins while they were still enemies of God, 
They will imitate God's unfathomable love for enemies incarnated in His Son's cross. Wow. Isn't that convicting? But doesn't that also ring true with exactly what we see here? That even if we do have to speak up about mistreatment or illegality or whatever, there is a way to do that that reflects Jesus and makes the gospel look good. Oh, that's what we want. And how in the world are we going to get that? The only way is through walking the path that the last two verses give us. Look at it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that is the substitutionary atonement that Jesus took our sin upon himself. And there was a purpose for that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Friends, doesn't the gospel just drip from that? Don't you just feel the heart of God in the midst of that? See, this is where we move from Jesus the example to Jesus the empowerment. That Jesus didn't just throw this command to these first century strugglers and say, hey, good luck, do what you can. No, he was with them. He knew what their suffering was like because he had walked the path of suffering beforehand. He knows what your suffering is like because he has endured far worse. And he is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Friend, if you need help to know what to do in a given situation at work, look to your shepherd. Look to the overseer of your soul. Pray even with your eyes open and not even if these words come out of your mouth, a flash prayer just asking that the good news of the gospel would well up within you. Asking that the Word of God would influence what you say in those moments, your tone in those moments, the posture of your heart in those moments. And you can do all that in three seconds in your mind. Because when you cry out to God, your shepherd, the overseer of your soul, oh friend, he's going to hear you. He is going to answer that prayer. And even if you're a fumbling, bumbling mess in what you say, I think God will be pleased because you were mindful of Him. You entrusted yourself to Him. You followed the example of your Savior with His empowerment. So friends, let's bring all this together today. Do you know this Savior? Are you trying to shepherd your own soul? You're trying to oversee your own path to heaven. Friends, if you're trying to work your way to heaven today, you don't yet know Him. But today can be the day of salvation. You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to believe in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And you need to confess your sin and commit your life to Him. If that resonates with you today and you want to take that step, please reach out to us. Shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you and get you started on your journey with Jesus. In addition, if you do know Him today, oh friend, where do you most need His help? Where do you need Him to intervene and care for you, shepherd you,
and remind you that he's got you. Is it in what we're talking about today? Is it in regard to suffering in general? Or is it in something beyond that? Friend, wherever it is, let's go to the Lord now and ask for his help. Lord, we come and we thank you for a text like this. We thank you that you have helped us understand it. And Lord, now that we do, we know how much we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you intervene and remind us of the greatness of Jesus right now? Would you remind us of the the gift that you have given us in your church to help us in times of trouble? And Lord, would you give us strength to live into what we have talked about today? Lord, we want to be people that live rightly even when we suffer unjustly and at other times. Lord, give us the grace. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' good name, amen.